Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, June 8th, 2021 episode of The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or a state of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my universe. My guest today is New York City-based composer, arranger, and big band leader, G.A. Lee. Regarded for her personal and adventurous storytelling approach to large ensemble jazz. Her music is imaginative and creative, says Jim McNeely, one of Lee's great mentors. And she's not afraid to take some exciting chances in her writing. Lee describes composition as a form of record keeping for herself, as the documentation of her life the process of finding musical equivalents to the images, thoughts, and emotions in her mind. She writes first and foremost for herself to release her feelings, which makes her music deeply personal. Her goal is to invite listeners into her creative world, to relate to her stories, to reflect on the truth that as humans, we share similar struggles and triumphs, regardless of where we come from. It is Lee's hope that we can create genuine connections with each other through art. She has organized successful crowdfunding campaigns for April, her 2017 debut album, as well as Daring Mind, her most recent album, released March 26, 2021, on Motema Music. April was co-produced by Greg Hopkins and recorded with Berkeley faculty members and top jazz professionals from the Boston area. The album revealed Lee's extraordinary gifts at the helm of a top-tier large ensemble, making original music with what the Village Voice called chamber-like textures, involved harmony, and sectional counterpoint, and persistent rhythmic drive. Daring Mind 
is produced by the innovative composer and secret society bandleader, Darcy James Argu, with renowned trumpeter Sean Jones appearing as a special guest. It presents compositions from Lee's Mind series, including her BMI Charlie Parker Jazz Composition Prize winning Unshakable Mind and her Manny album commission piece Revived Mind. The music reflects her struggles, doubts, and hopes while living in the amazing city of New York. All of the compositions explore the human mind, heart, and soul, the various states of the human psyche, from confusion to rage to enlightenment. A native of South Korea, Lee had no jazz or classical training growing up, though she found success in Korea performing as an indie pop singer. She graduated from Dongduk Women's University with a degree in voice performance, discovering her love of large ensemble jazz only after beginning her studies at Boston's Berklee College of Music in 2011. Confidently, she began to explore her own identity and voice within this exciting, historically rich medium, winning Berkeley's Duke Ellington Prize just months after declaring her jazz composition major, and again the following year. Though she could never have anticipated this new path, she has followed it to greater heights moving to New York in 2015 and earning a master's degree at Manhattan School of Music under the guidance of the great Jim McNeely with generous funding from school scholarships and the CJ Cultural Foundation. Navigating the transition from pop singer to jazz composer has given Lee a different angle on jazz composition providing her not only with a lyrical, melodic sense, but also a way of imagining characters in every composition, or themes with which people can identify. Her first instinct is not to find chords and melodies. Lee is not herself an instrumentalist, but rather an idea, image, or message, and then find a way to express it through musical elements. On Daring Mind her, and all her current work, Lee has built on fruitful relationships and musical bonds with top-tier players on the New York scene. Because jazz does not exclude based on gender, nationality, ethnicity, religion, age, and so forth, Lee has found a home a deep place of belonging in the jazz community, where the response to her unique and honest original music has been extremely receptive. In addition to the BMI Foundation's Charlie Parker Jazz Composition Prize and Manny Album Commission in 2018, Lee has received the 2020 ASCAP Foundation Symphonic Jazz Orchestra Commissioning Prize. She has written music 
for the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra with Wynton Marcellus, as well as Carnegie Hall's NYO Jazz. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, G.A. Lee. Hello, G.A. It's really great to talk with you, and I am uh, very uh, humbled to have you as a guest on my show today because uh, you have uh, very quickly emerged as a wonderful uh, composer and arranger for the Jazz Orchestra, and uh, I'm uh, looking forward to hearing more of your story and uh, providing my listeners a greater insight into what goes on in New York City in the jazz scene. So my first question for you is to ask you about the challenges of maintaining a professional big band in New York City, uh, you know, even prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I guess it's the same everywhere. I would say the financial issue is the toughest thing for us to deal with, I would say. Because it's 17 people in the band and you are basically doing or composing what you think is beautiful, not necessarily to sell, not necessarily to um, you know, be received well to the wider audience. It's more likely you know, very artsy art form and we, most of us composers um, invest from our pocket. Um, and you can't really expect you would continue this art form from the money do you, from the money that you earn from selling CDs or having, having audience in the shows. You know, it's almost impossible, but it's somewhat miraculous because I see a lot of young composers still actively doing shows, composing in New York City or in everywhere. So, you know, people might think that Big Band is dead, but I don't know. I mean, I am seeing a new wave, I would say. Um, but we shall see. <laughs> well, I think you make a really interesting point. I once uh, read an article where different uh, musical genres were really defined by their economic basis. Mm. So for example, pop music is very, you know, commercial, it sells and it's, mm -hmm. and it's designed and marketed to appeal to the lowest common denominator of musical taste <laughs> to have the broadest appeal. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I forget who, who the jazz musician was that said, it'll probably come to me in a little while, that says, uh, is uh, the big difference between your pop music and jazz music is that you only use the white keys of the piano. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, no, no minor ninths in pop music, right? <laughs> uh, and that uh, uh, classical and art music and certainly jazz is in that category of art music. I mean, it certainly has grown well past its utilitarian uh, purpose of being dance music. I don't imagine you have many dancers at your performances. 
Uh, and uh, certainly since the revolution of bebop in the 1940s and, and moving forward, jazz has uh, been the focus of a music for listening, just like classical music. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and then of course, when you look at contemporary classical music or what's called classical music, contemporary classical music, it sounds like an oxymoron because we think of classical as things that are old and been around a while, which is true and contemporary classic. But when you listen to contemporary art music composers whose main uh, vehicle is the symphony orchestra, uh, I don't see any difference between the music that those composers are writing using the symphony orchestra as their vehicle, as a composer such as yourself, who uses the modern jazz big band as their vehicle of expression. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, when you talk about your music not necessarily being to be marketed, that therefore then comes into that. Uh, class of art music. And just for sake of discussion, a third category was folk music and its basic support is, is tradition. You know, people passing down music from one generation to another uh, as, as, as so forth. So I, I, uh, I, I think that uh, you're thinking along those lines uh, is, is excellent. I think the other distinction that you very clearly made, and that is the difference between an artist and an entertainer. An entertainer gives their audience what they want to hear. An artist gives their audience what they, the artist, wants to hear. And I think that that's that's a, a a distinction for what uh, what we do, and uh, so I applaud your efforts as an artist. Yeah, but I don't really think that I see this kind of issue with that kind of like black and white perspective. You know, oh. I think I think every every artist we can't solely write music for ourselves. It's, I think it's the journey of finding the right audience. It can be a thousand people, 10,000 people, 100K people, doesn't matter. But effort that artists has is how, how can we reach the audience who might, who might be waiting for this kind of music? And, and then it also, depending on how many audience you would like to have or how many like lovers towards your music you want to have. So, I mean, it's the balance and then that balance can be adjusted based on your desire. Um, mm-hmm. And then it's so funny because like sometimes we hear the most dissonance, most unpleasant sound of music, which can be modern classical or, or any kind of music that has so much dissonance and craziness. But it's always interesting to see that a certain group of people would like to hear that would like to pay for pay pay money for it so mm-hmm. there are lots of you know different group of people in this world and then that's a hope <laughs> well i think i know i think you know there's a fair comparison to what you're talking about in in visual art i mean there probably are some people who you know would be happy uh 
with a steady diet of Rembrandt. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, you know, if you want to get, you know, into the Impressionists and so forth. And then there are some who really enjoy like contemporary artworks, which aren't necessarily a visual depiction of anything, but rather an exploitation of just shapes and colors and Mm -hmm. textures. And I think we do the same thing in music. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I know, you know, when people ask me, what kind of music do I like to listen to? Well, I tell them I love all kinds of music. I literally love all music. (laughs) I just have different levels of tolerance for some versus others. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, uh, there's a contemporary uh, composer named Michael Gordon. Uh, You you may have heard of him. He's, I think he's, uh, he's based on the East Coast someplace. And I, I, his music is is incredibly stimulating it's it's not melodious it's not but there's a certainty a certain uh je ne sais quoi uh, quality about it that i can't put my finger on it but i just go yeah this is really great you know <laughs> anyway you know it, it, the thing i would say about you know your music that intrigues me is that it is a I, I, a very artistic expression, but it still is within, and I don't want to use the word confine, uh, uh, but I was going to say within the confines of the jazz tradition. Mm-hmm. Confine is not a good word because it's like confining. So maybe I'll think of a better word, guideline or or something. I mean, your music is still in the best of the tradition of great uh, big bands. Uh, I, I think of, I in one of my emails, I compared your music to that of, of uh, Toshiko Akiyoshi, whose big band music I used to love to play when I was in college. And I had a wonderful opportunity actually of working uh, under her in a clinic situation and also witnessing a rehearsal of her band. And I loved her music. And, um, and she explored a lot of unique colors and textures, but yet still there was that underpinning of bebop. Uh, or I think of Thad Jones and his, his music. And you, I believe, are following very much in that same kind of tradition. When I listen to your music, I don't know if you agree with me or disagree, <laughs> but, but... Well, it's all up to listeners, so... I, I guess you're right. I mean, you know, whoever, however you want to take it. Well, uh, with COVID-19, many musicians have been finding creative ways to stay busy uh, because touring and performing live are largely on hold. So what sorts of things have you been doing in the past few months in lieu of live performing and touring? Um, um, Since the nature of the Big Band, it's just so many people, it's almost impossible to tour unless we have lots of funds from some kind of organizations. So um, that the touring is not happening as much as small band for us big bands. Um, but since all the shows are canceled, I had to lose some kind of gigs that I am writing for. Unnecessarily, I bring my big band, but you know we have some arranging gigs or composing gigs for the shows. But 
I think all the composers had to experience that kind of like losing, losing composing gigs. But I think we are less effective than smaller groups. But anyways, um, honestly, I didn't really do a lot of musical work in 2020. I think, you know, I think in a way we all were in shock and just to figure out how to adjust. And then, you know, just to figuring out, we spent some months. I mean, I think I would say I, that I spent that time just to learn how to live as a human, not as a musician necessarily. And okay. I developed some hobbies such as soap making, and then I cooked a lot. But, um, but fortunately, I recorded my this album in 2020, January, which is right before the COVID, COVID, COVID break. So I spent some kind of 2020 for mixing, mastering, and post-production. It kept me a bit busy. Um, yeah, and then after the release, I'm doing a lot of administration work, um, such as like, you know, it's just an independent artist's job. You just do a lot of work by yourself. So, yeah. And okay. Yeah, that's it pretty much. <laughs> well, and I, I would have to imagine that you're still writing. I am. I am writing, but not, you know, it's kind of funny because people just assume that once you have a lot of time, you're going to write a lot. But I think it's all about energy. When, when outside of the world, like all the creativity happen, even though you're busier, you write more because mm -hmm. of inspiration. Because mm -hmm. you can just go out every night and I hear the most, most, you know, um, advanced jazz, you know, every night. This is the advantage of living in New York. And once it stops, I talked with a lot of composers and we all are the same. People think we write more, but it's actually opposite. But I am writing. Fortunately, <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I would think you know. I, in I've had discussions with, of course, uh, numerous uh, musicians, uh, jazz musicians, blues musicians, country western musicians, and but the one common theme that comes through that I hear in what you're saying is that we're stimulated by other musicians. Mm, you know I, what I mean? Because yeah. Let's face it, music is uh, a common language. Mm -hmm. And there's different styles of music, just like there are people that have different accents based, you know, when they speak uh, English or any other mm -hmm. language, depending on where they come from. And one of the things that I have experienced myself is the incredible elation of speaking to another musician in New York, Chicago, LA, uh, Trieste, Italy, wherever I've, you know, interviewed. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, there's been some of my, you know, well, of course, you know, Alan Ferber. Uh, when I interviewed Alan, it was like, uh oh, put two college professors together, you know, and, and two, you know, people that have a lot of interest. And we, man, we had a nice long talk, but I think we both agreed that it was refreshing to be able to sit down and talk music 
with another musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so hopefully that, uh, that creative spark in you will, will come back once we keep, are able to interact again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, so that's, that's wonderful. And, and, I, and yes, I do know when you are an independent, there's a lot of work you have to do. One of my bands, we recorded an album. And of course, I had to choose all the charts book the studio time, write the liner notes, do the album cover art, you know, uh, set up, get permissions on the, on the uh, arrangements of non-original music that we used, you know, all that stuff, you know, exact, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> and it, it is a lot of work, but it's something that, that uh, we, we enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I taught uh, jazz history, and appreciation at the University of Wisconsin, Waukesha, I would teach Duke Ellington with a reminder to my students that Ellington started out in life wanting to be a painter. Hmm. And uh, when he was about 13 or 14, uh, a friend of his told him that if he became a pianist that he would get more girlfriends. (laughs) So that's why he chose to go into music. Uh, And I have always been of the opinion that uh, Duke Ellington painted on a canvas of silence with the color of sounds. And I, you know, he expanded for the time, for his time, the 30s and the 40s, the 50s, expanded the color palette of the big band with what were at that time, for example, unusual combinations of instruments, some some instruments muted, some instruments open, Um, the way he voiced. uh, One of the pieces that I would teach in my class was his composition, Translucency, a blue cloud you can almost see through, which is written for uh, written for uh, trombone, clarinet, wordless vocal and rhythm section. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, but what's interesting is not just the combination of the voice clarinet and trombone, but the voicings that he used to get a unique sound. I would even go as far as like, I, I, I can identify Beethoven, or when I hear a piece, I know it's Beethoven because of the way he voices his woodwinds. Uh-huh. I mean, that's to me, that's, that's when I hear that sound, I go, yeah, that's Beethoven, because of the way he pits the clarinet, flute, oboe, bassoon, to, you know, in the order that he puts the instruments in the chords. So now here comes my question. Is that, uh, you know, you have had a wonderful and a meteoric success as a composer and arranger for big bands. Would you talk about the big band as an ensemble for musical expression and the various approaches to the elements of music that an arranger may take to create different colors and forms of musical expression, and certainly feel free to draw upon examples of your own music. Huh, I mean, yeah. I think, you know, it's just, you have, you have more colors on your palette. <sighs> and then, okay, you have 13 horns and rhythm section, which gives you 17 colors. And at the same time, all the saxophone player, they, they 
mostly they double a lot of instruments mm. like flute, clarinet, alto flute, oboe, bass clarinet, you name it. Like, you know, like it's the, it's the crazy thing that to see lots of musicians playing in big band, how can they, how can they double that many instruments? And on the top of it, they read great. They play with the ensemble. It's a great, like it's a high level of musicianship, I would say. And, you know, I love trombone section. I think trombone is a very interesting instrument because it can be very percussive, loud, uh, manly. It can be like, you know, strong, but at the same time, it can play soft, so warm when, when it plays certain register or even with mutes. It's just like heavenly. It's so mellow. I love the sound. And then trumpets, you know more than me, basically, obviously. <laughs> but trumpets can use a lot of mutes, you know, harmon mutes, cup mute, you know, straight mute, bucket mute, mm -hmm. or like harmon mute with the, where's that? The, the plunger uh, or the, uh, uh, the harmon mute with the, yeah, with the stem. Yeah, stem in and out, you know, mm -hmm. and then plunger mute. Or even you can say, hey, can you play instant so that it, you know, diminishes some kind of sound. Mm -hmm. You know, all the combination, you have even more colors on the palette and it's your job to come, you know, to combine any kind of instruments. So I think it's great. Also, I don't really limit myself to think that rhythm section has to have a rhythm section role. You know, sometimes I feel like piano can be melody instrument, so it can so it can double with the uh, other horns, or bass can play with bass clarinet. Why not? Mm -hmm. Or you know, um, drum can do same hits as you know another horn players or horn section. So it like when you don't really think in the box, the big band can give you countless possibilities in terms of the color. But what I really appreciate. With the big band is the dynamic range you know it can it can small as one solo instrument it can be big as 17 people so that dynamic range can give you a lot of drama it gives you you know i think the big band when you hear that live you're overwhelmed i'm sure oh, yeah. i guarantee i oh. guarantee even <laughs> though you you say i don't i don't like loud music but please go listen to life and then you're gonna love the music because the energy that the big band plays the 13 people on the stage gives you that energy is so strong and it's so lovable and yeah so as a composer i appreciate the dynamic range that big band gives and you know when the when the 13 people play pianissimo together it's so it's so beautiful too and then when it when every people play everybody play plays like you know loud as possible that dynamic range that's just crazy so yeah i i just love the big band um instrumentation and right now i think the effort to add like some kind of unusual instruments like you know maria schneider brings accordion Mm -hmm. And some people brings violin, uh, and then some some kind of like composer from Middle East Middle Eastern region. They bring their own instrument and then just you know mix with the orchestra. So 
I think the possibility in the sense it's just countless. Well, I, I have two stories I want to share with you, personal stories that that are I'm inspired to tell you. One is my initial turn on, what really turned me on to jazz was when I heard the Stan Kenton Orchestra in 1972. Mm-hmm. I was in high school. And I happened to be at a concert and I happened to have a seat on the front row because I got wow. there really early because I had never heard this, never, you know, I'd never heard live big band jazz before. Stan Kenton walks out in front and of course the applause, he turns around to the band and all he says is Uno. And of course that was their cue to go into Malaguena. And if you know Stan Kenton's Malaguena, it opens with that huge blast of high screaming trumpets. <laughs> and I think it blew, blew my hair back. And I went, all I could, it was like, oh, wow. I'm sure my jaw was on the floor. But another comparison to that was, I don't know if it was in the same concert or not, but it would be, or maybe it was another concert when I heard Stan Kenton and they did the arrangement of here's that rainy day Hmm. that his band plays, which opens with just trombones and bass playing very softly. And it's just, it's exactly like you're saying, the trombone section can play that soft, uh, you know, with those wonderful dissonances that are, you know, Ellington used to call it excruciating ecstasy, <laughs> you know, and, and then it later on, it just opens up and screams. So yeah, I'm right there with you. That's why I love big band music. Yeah. And um, so, and, and I think yours is in that, uh, I, I'm very excited about your music as well. So I, you know, uh, the other thing, the other story I wanted to tell you, when I was at the University of North Texas doing my graduate work, I studied jazz improvisation with a man by the name of Rich Madison. Hmm. Now, Rich Madison was a jazz euphonium player. Wow. Yes. And he, you could probably find some of his recordings. Uh, I don't know how many are going to be available. I think there's one or two maybe on Spotify or, or iTunes. But Rich was a was a really great guy. But he used to he used to say, he said, you know, if I came, I couldn't get a degree in jazz here at this school where I teach because they don't recognize euphonium as a quote unquote jazz instrument. It's not part of the big band, right? Yeah. So he says, one of these days, he says, I'm going to start a big band and I'm going to call it the leftovers. Instead of saxophones, it's going to be oboes and bassoons. Instead of trombones, it's going to be euphoniums. And uh, instead of instead of trumpets, French horns, Hmm. you know, because he was he was those instruments that we don't typically associate with jazz, but they're finding their way in, you know, because those are colors that contemporary composers are looking for and want want to hear i think in their in the music and i think uh that's uh that's awesome and you mentioned about you know composers from other countries and bringing in some of those uh, non-western instruments to to the the scene it's really wonderful well i want to kind of turn to a, a, a personal question to you as a composer and arranger who inspired you (laughs) <laughs> That's a tough question. Um, 
Yeah, I grew up in South Korea, which has barely like any jazz music. Um, so I didn't even know the art form jazz orchestra until I came to Boston in 2011. So I am not the case that, oh, I played trumpet, piano, trombone in my high school big band, and then I wanted to become a composer. I'm not that kind of, I'm not one of them. Or um, I'm not a person like, oh, I, I played classical piano, or um, I played in, you know, like high school orchestra, whatever. So I, yeah, I just had no jazz music, classical music, or even great pop music background until very late. So I think the biggest influence on me is just the pop music that I whatever listen to from the TV. And then, be, and then at the time, it's, it's even before the K-pop development era. So it was like, I would say very crappy, <laughs> Gigi corny pop music that I listened to. Um, but somehow I knew that I would become a composer and then I wanted to explore other possibilities. And then I came to Boston to attend Berkeley College of Music. And then I heard that Big Ben Live. And I was like, what the, <laughs> you know, what the hell is this? That was uh -huh. exactly what I was thinking. Just like you heard uh, Stan, you know, Kenton. Yeah, Stan mm -hmm. Kenton's music uh, in front of the band. So after that, I discovered Maria Schneider, which is uh -huh. the, the most well-known figure in the jazz music and then jazz big band music scene. And Jim McNeely and Vanguard Orchestra, uh -huh. Thad Jones, Gil Evans and, you know, Bob Brumeyer, lots of great composers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I would say Maria Schneider is the one that I listened to the most and then got inspired the most, but it's still very short in comparison to the other composers. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Well, see, I, that's what I find so fascinating about your story mm -hmm. is it's almost as if this... Um, you had already within you fermenting this musical energy and we're just almost waiting to discover a way for it to come out. And then when you heard that big band, that seemed to be uh, a way for you to, to really find your expressive moment. Because you weren't, unless I'm wrong, you, I mean, you weren't interested in writing pop music, were you? Mm -hmm. Oh, you were? Okay, I see. I was just a, like, you know, indie pop singer who writes, like, singer-songwriter. Okay. But, yeah, but it was just, like, you know, a smaller scale. But, Lahiri, that big band changed your direction, changed your flow. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that great? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting path. Um, but I think I am interested in larger ensemble in general. It can be symphony. It can be, I don't know what, what it can be, <laughs> but yeah, big band or symphony or any kind of, if I can have many colors in my palette, I think I'm happy. Mm -hmm. I say mm -hmm. that. Well, there's another great composer arranger who I admire, who's, well, he's been gone for several years. He died in the mid 1970s. His name was Don Ellis. 
Oh, yeah. You know Don Ellis? Yep. Okay. And you know, his background was, uh, he was kind of a contemporary uh, composer. He was very active with uh, Gunter Schuller and the Third Stream kind of approach things back in the late 50s. His uh, big band, uh, uh, you know, he started out with, uh, you know, some unusual instrumentation. He'd use three bass players because he wanted to have a separate bass player for each section. And he then, for some of his later recordings, he added strings, but then he also wrote film music and he also wrote music for orchestra and for concert bands and things like that. I mean, he really kind of expanded his palette. I think that was, it was interesting. I've been fortunate that for the past several months, I've been working with a guy out in LA uh, um, we are developing uh, uh, critical editions of some of Don Ellis's scores. Wow. And uh, because all of his non-published uh, music is all stored at the uh, Ethnomusicology Library at UCLA. And so when I, I told this guy I wanted to work with him, uh, he sent me Don's sketches for his arrangement of... Um, Oh, for crying out loud. I'm having a, a, a brain. I'll, I'll think, oh, Freedom Jazz Dance. He mm. see, he and Eddie Harris had been in the army together wow. in the 50s in Germany. And so he wrote an arrangement, although his is in 7-4. <laughs> and all I had to go on were these sketches. And then I wrote and developed a score and then commentary on on everything for this uh, critical edition but it's kind of on hold right now too because of covid but yeah. uh, we're working on it but he was a composer and sometimes there was one of your tunes i was listening to the other day um that mm, i wish i could remember which one it was it's uh but I, it kind of reminded me of of one of don's charts hmm. because of the meter and uh, and uh, so anyway, I'm just throwing that out there because I, I just love great music and and uh, you know his as as well as yours. Um, so, uh, do you have any tips for any young aspiring musicians who might be listening to my podcast? Hmm. I think you know nowadays all the boundaries are you know being blurry so like you know I mean I'm not saying I agree or disagree I'm not putting any opinion but gender gender's boundary is not as clear as before right now and ethnicities too I mean we Korea we 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 firmly believe that we are all 100% Korean, but who knows? Maybe you know our ancestors. You know, maybe one of them, you know, maybe married to Indian person. It it it's very possible. So we wouldn't know. I think it it's happening in the jazz world too, especially big band music too, because I we jazz composers, big band composers, don't have same background as Duke Ellington or as Dad Jones. We don't. Grow, we didn't grow up listening to the same music that they did. Right. So, I mean, as a composer, we want to be honest. And then, what's the honest way? It's just, you know, we just write music that we feel 
the most comfortable. And then it's based on our experience, based on who we are. Mm-hmm, exactly. So, so I would say, don't be afraid of being who you are and don't be afraid of bringing whatever you have in your head or in your blood, in your, or in your just experience into jazz. Because mm-hmm. I really think that jazz is a liberated art form and then it welcomes you just who you are. So, I mean, it can be, it can cause a bit of controversy, but maybe people think, you know, Dad Jones or, you know, Duke Ellington is the, is the standard big band sound. So you should follow this and follow and cherish this art form in a way that they did. But I am a composer who is from South Korea, who didn't listen to any kind of music growing up. And if I become a Thatchers, if you want to, yes, you can, but it doesn't feel natural to me. So I am just mm-hmm. writing music the way I am writing. So yeah, that's the tip that I would like to give, if I may, um, to mm-hmm. any kind of young composers out there. I think that's wonderful. I think that's a wonderful suggestion. I, you know, uh, the truth of the matter is, and I, this is my opinion, music is the most plastic of all the art forms. Hmm. It's not like a painting or a sculpture. It's that once it's completed, it goes and sits in the gallery. Music is recreated every time it's performed. Yep. And that performance can change based on who's playing the music on a particular given night and how, you know, there's a lot of variables. Let's just put it that way. I won't, I won't belabor that. Uh, and I think that's the wonderful thing about music is that we can have amalgamations of different styles and different eras, if you will. It's like um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was interviewing uh, Aubrey Logan who's a a jazz uh, trombonist and singer. Uh, And she did a few uh, recordings with postmodern jukebox. (laughs) If you know that band and that that's an interesting band because this, uh, the the guy, the guy, his name escapes me right now, who's the arranger purposefully takes modern day pop tunes and then arranges them as though they were, uh, recorded or written in the 30s or 40s. Interesting. It is very interesting. You just you could find postmodern jukebox. You'd be able to find it online. I would. I would definitely remember the name. And <laughs> yes, and Aubrey. Aubrey is a, a, a really a wonderful artist. What turned me on to her was on one of the Facebook pages that I I follow. Somebody posted one of her new singles where she does uh, a version of Sunny Side of the Street. And her singing was awesome. Her trombone playing blew me out of the water. So I, I wrote to her, I said, hey, would you be a guest on my podcast? And she's, uh, you know, she's also a Berkeley grad. So, you know, she's in good company with you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she brings a pop element to her performing because her newest album, which is coming out in about two weeks, it's called Standards, but it's not standards like we think of jazz standards it's some of them are more modern pop tunes that she is 
considering standards because she thinks they're beautiful songs. She also writes some neat, uh, really nice uh, original things. But, but I, I'm really curious about your creative process. What inspires you when you write? Um, I think I find inspiration mostly from life and means I write music to tell the story. I think the story is the most um, common ins inspiration toward my music. Um, so my process is like this, like when you have story to tell, you kind of, I kind of try to figure out what's the musical musical equivalence of the story. So converting any idea into a musical idea. So I like that, you know, that playing games. Um, um, so let's say, for instance, my second track is called Unshakable Mind. And I was like, how can I, how can I deliver unshakable mind through any kind of notes or music sound? And I decided to play, repeat, like I, I started, I decided to repeat the note A throughout the piece. So the bass player starts with the A harmonics and then going to lower A, lower A, lowest A. And during the mid section, when the guitar, um, the bass guitar, bass player plays some kind of solo lines, the piano takes over the note A. So note A, you're hearing constantly. That's the way that I say, this is the unshakable mind, <laughs> you know? Um, let's say there's a tune called dissatisfied mind. And what mm -hmm. can be the dissatisfied mind? And then I decided to have a theme, the interval theme, inter intervalic theme. So I used minus again and tritone throughout the piece. <laughs> so, ah. It's very unpleasant, but that's how I express this is the dissatisfied mind. So, sure. Like, for instance, there's a tune called Suji, which is mm -hmm. the name of my dear friend. And I only use the major seven, major chord, major nine chord. So there's no minor, there's no dominant, only major and lots of ascending lines. That's how I see Suji because she's a happy person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she has positive side like a lot of positive sides. She sees beautiful things in everything. So that's how I describe Suji. So yeah, that kind of play, I like to play. <laughs> you know, that's, it's very interesting that, uh, uh, that you, you know, cause I, you know, we, we've associated, or I should say the history of music, there's always been certain um, emotions associated with certain keys, mm. like A flat, is supposed to be melancholy, hmm. I think. Anyway, and certain, and, and you know, uh, maybe it's enculturated, but you know, minor, minor keys are often associated with sadness or seriousness. And, uh, you know, and I don't know that that's universal, but it, at least it is in Western cultures. And uh, uh, so that you kind of, you know, convert a non-musical concept such as the the you know the different unsettled mind and you choose the tritone mm. 
-hmm. I mean, and the tritone is the most unsettled interval in music. Mm -hmm. I mean, the intervallus diabolus, you know, the devil's interval uh, is, is genius really. And it, and it makes you wonder too about, um, you know, thinking about uh, the opening of Beethoven's fifth symphony and the falling third and the way that that is supposed to exemplify fate knocking at the door. And, and then the final movement of his symphony five is, you know, somehow, you know, seen as him try achieving triumph over having to deal with his deafness and so on. I mean, yes, I think, you know, and musical thinking, which is, I think also what you're talking about, being able to take a, an abstract concept and then put it into some sort of musical thought. That's one of our seven intelligences is musical thinking and thinking in music or thinking, you know, when we see a, a, a particular color, thinking of a particular melodic line or a harmony or, or, or something. So that, uh, that's intriguing to me that you, you think that way when you write, that's really awesome. So do you usually start with a melodic idea, a rhythmic idea, a particular set of chord changes, or do you have a particular mood or do you ever have like, um, uh, fake lyrics that you make up to kind of like give some sort of meaning to the direction you're going with an instrumental sound? Oh, looks like we froze for a moment. Yeah. But I heard oh, yeah. a question. Okay. Um, I think it really depends on compositions. Okay. I think the first step that I do is just doing nothing but thinking. Mm -hmm. I walk around or I just lie down on bed and just thinking or just, you know, sitting on the piano and just doing nothing but thinking. So I would rather start with the structure or theme like oh like just like i said what can be the theme of this story theme of this music and when i find a theme i i start to think in my head the arc of the music the structure and oh maybe i want do i want to start with the big sound do i want to start with the small sound do i want to have two souls one souls or like like, you know, the structure of the music, that's what I mostly think. And maybe I would just, you know, like, do sketch or just use the computer and then I write a lot of notes. I start with this, I do this, and around this, maybe around three minutes or four, four fifty, whatever, and then I make note. This is this section, this is this section. So I kind of like have the bone the structure first, the skeleton. and then later I would like to compose in front of the computer, uh, in front of the piano. Do you hear me? I, I can still hear you. Oh, it seems like we froze again. Yeah. I see you now. Okay, yeah. And I could hear you. We just had a temporary freeze because of poor internet, I think. Mm -hmm. 
So I got to the point where you, you create the kind of the skeletal framework of your piece at the mm -hmm. computer, mm -hmm. and then you go to the piano. Mm -hmm. Okay. And <clears throat> so do you, uh, do you keep a sketchbook of, of ideas of different heads or vamps or other musical ideas that you might draw upon later? Um, I rather using my cell phone. <laughs> okay. Because it has the recording function. So sure. I would just like, you know, whatever, I sing this melody a little bit. If I have the melody thin and just, you know, keep it on my phone. That's, yeah, I don't really have the, I don't really carry the music notebook. Well, that would be old technology anyway. I, I wouldn't say, I mean, I wouldn't say so. It, it's a wonderful way to compose. Like, it, you know, people think that, you know, technology is great, but there's another research that you have to, like the certain way of you using your, you know, your, your hand and you touch your pen, pencil, and you just write. Mm -hmm. That also does something, but I'm just too lazy maybe. <laughs> no, I think, you know, I, I've talked to numerous composers and song, pardon me, songwriters, and they all, they say very much the same thing. They use technology. <laughs> if they get a melodic idea, they just sing it into their, their phone. They, they, you know, because as, as one told me, uh, a lot of times when they get their best ideas is when they're driving in the car. Huh. And you certainly don't want to stop, have to try to be right. writing music while you're supposed to be driving. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then there was someone else uh, said they got their best ideas when they were in the shower. <laughs> right. I think that's I'm I'm in that camp. And then the the most interesting one was a, a singer songwriter here in uh, the Milwaukee area that I interviewed, and she said she got her best ideas while she was vacuuming, <laughs> vacuuming her carpet. So I guess we all have different ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting that uh, you are similar yet different from other composers I've talked to. Talk to. Uh, so I uh, assume, well, we pretty much have addressed this, that you are still uh, writing. You're maybe not constantly, but you're doing some writing. And uh, are you planning any new recording projects for the future? Now you said you recorded uh, your most recent released album uh, in December of 2020. No, December, 2019. January, 2020. January, 2020. Okay, thank you for straightening me out. So are we looking at uh, another album uh, coming soon or way off? I would like to, I would like to have another album soon, but if, if the plan goes well, I would like to have another big band album, maybe recording next year and releasing at the end of the next year or begin. Mm -hmm. Goal. Mm -hmm. But if the, if the thing goes well, um, sure. I'm writing, I'm writing some kind of big band music using some of the Korean traditional music elements. Okay. But it's so hard because Korean music, we don't really have harmony. We only have pentatonic-ish melody. 
and basically that's it but like very intric intric intriguing rhythm but we don't really have harmony which is very opposite with that uh, jazz orchestra idiom because jazz orchestra is all about lush rich harmony and I, I have to be very careful very clever to use both elements and then doesn't sound strange it's the it's a big task so i am i am in the process of composing i actually premiered some of the works back in 2019 and 2018 in new york sometimes um, but i haven't really developed fully that idea into the album work but i am on it I want to spend this year or next year to think about that album. And it's a, it's a, and also I have another virtual gig happening in May, May 21. It's a, it's an online streaming event. I've, I've been asked to write and perform at the Flushing Town Hall in New York um, to uh, dedicating the music to the victims in Atlanta uh, from the Asian hates crime. So I put together an all Korean female band. So it, it's very interesting. I haven't done that kind of thing, but it's quintet, so smaller ensemble, and I'm going to be singing. So it's, uh, I would say it's just like a little bit, like little sideways. <laughs> I'm, I'm walking on the sideways um, just momentarily. So I'm writing for that event and I'm oh. excited and looking forward to see what what comes out. Well, that's very interesting. And it's led me to another question, which uh, I didn't put in my questions I submitted to you. So if you don't want to answer it, I'm okay oh, with that's that. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> but now that you've let it know that you're singing on this next gig, have you considered writing an arrangement for your big band featuring yourself as a vocalist? Oh, it's like we froze up again. There we Sorry, go. It was it was cutting a lot. Yes, it did. So, it froze. Yeah. Um, so I heard that. Are you planning on? Oh, I'll just ask the question again. Now that you've made it known that you are singing for this gig up in Flushing, have you or would you consider writing an arrangement for big band that features you as a vocalist? Maybe, but okay. I'd rather have a chamber ensemble. Like okay. if, I, if I write singing music and I sing, I don't think it's gonna be big band, but more likely maybe chamber ensemble. Okay. I think maybe, maybe I don't know, next, next album, next, next, next album. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Yeah. all right. Well, I think it's it's something you could. I mean, you're the leader. You could you could choose to do that if you wanted. I suppose no one would protest. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you a question that uh, I've asked every jazz musician that I have interviewed thus far, and I'm going to ask you, what is it that makes jazz unique from other types of music? <sighs> <laughs> Jazz. 
jazz. What makes jazz unique? I would say it's just the openness, you know, like that jazz. Um, I see, maybe it's because I live in New York because I see a lot of people like me who is from another country and then they just bring their own ancestor's soul or like any spirit that that they have in their country and they happen to manage incorporate that into jazz and then jazz world somehow welcomes it it's very interesting to see mm -hmm. so i would say jazz is evolving And jazz is even though we feel like jazz was a pop music in you know back in 30s through 70s or 80s but and then maybe people think that jazz is an old music but i see it's still alive still changing still moving forward with lots of different group of people and then i think that quality makes jazz very unique mm. I think, you know, I think that you have hit on something that I used to teach my students. I used to teach them the word pigeon. Now, I'm not referring to the bird, <laughs> but a pigeon is a new language that evolves when you put two disparate people together that speak different languages, and they create this new language called a pigeon mm. to be able to communicate. And I and I've often said that jazz is a musical pigeon nice. because uh, it's truly reflective of the cultural melting pot mm -hmm. that is the United States. Yep. Um, of course, I think we've expanded be to the world is becoming a cultural melting pot. But, you know, if you go back 100 years, uh, the cultural melting pot that it was the United States and the, the bringing together of European music blues and uh, ragtime music to create jazz as, a, as a, a form. And then over the years, jazz has always been like a sponge absorbing whatever influences, whether they're, uh, uh, you know, wh whatever part of the world they're from mm -hmm. and uh, or whatever particular cultural background people bring to it. So I, I think you're spot on. <laughs> you really you really are in terms of, of uh, the way I would describe it. Well, is there anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I haven't asked you about? No, I think you asked wonderful questions and then well, I think you. I answered, you know, pretty much. Okay. <laughs> I always like to throw that in because the number one thing I would always claim is I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I can always miss things. So I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me today. I really do appreciate it. Uh, this whole podcast thing is kind of a dream of mine, a hobby. It, uh, it got started because uh, the last few years of my full-time teaching career, I used to teach online and I bought a nice microphone so my students would have good audio. Right. And uh, last summer, I was here at my computer and seeing that microphone sitting there, and I was thinking it was going to waste and <laughs> thought, you know, okay, I'll start a podcast about music. And you have helped 
bring my dream to fruition. And I am very appreciative of that. So all the best with what I'm sure will be a continued successful musical future for you. Thank you. You're very welcome. And we're clear. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. I look forward to uh, next time I come to New York, I'll have to make sure I find out where you're playing and come hear the, your, your band. And uh, uh, although I'm not doing much of any traveling at all right now. So, and I look forward to uh, a new recording when it comes out, you've got (laughs) one in the plans. So very good. Thank you. Sure thing. All the best to you. And, uh, and take care now. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. My discovery composer of the week is Johann Friedrich Fosch, born in 1688, died in 1758, was one of the most significant German contemporaries of Johann Sebastian Bach. His orchestral works are characteristic of the transition from the late Baroque style to the classicism of Haydn and Mozart. His first compositions followed those of his friend, Georg Philipp Telemann. While a student at the University of Leipzig, he formed a Collegium Musicum, which rivaled the eminence of the Thomasschule in the city's musical life. After journeying through several courts and cities, in 1722, he accepted the position of court Kapellmeister in Zerbst. He remained in Zerbst for the rest of his life. During his tenure there, Fausch was primarily occupied with the composition of church cantatas and festival music for the court. His fame as a composer spread widely beyond Saxony as far as Prague and Vienna. During the 19th century, Fosch was so much overshadowed by Bach that he was, a, he was neglected by music historians. Fosch's cantatas correspond roughly with those of Krieger, Telemann, and Stürzel in their rigid sequence of da capo arias recitatives, and chorales. His masses are considerably richer and his concertos, 61 extant, show the development from Baroque to early classical style. Fosch's unusual treatment of orchestral instruments, in particular the wind instruments, attract special attention even from his contemporaries. The orchestral suites are based on the traditional form of the French overture, followed by a series of dance movements. It is unlikely that Foch, in his innovations, was influenced by his contemporaries, nor are his own works produced in the isolation of his lifelong position in Zerbst, likely to have influenced other composers. His works are important primarily for their originality, for the creation of a musical vocabulary strikingly similar to the classical idiom of Haydn and Mozart. 
The All Music Guide lists 31 recordings of Fosch's chamber music, seven of his choral works, 59 of his concerti, one recording of his overture for organ in G major, 33 of his orchestral works, and four recordings of vocal works. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube video of Fosch's trumpet concerto in D major, performed by Miroslav Petkov and the International Bach Festival Ensemble. That wraps episode number 33. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I will be interviewing Decatur, Illinois-based singer-songwriter Ashley Riley. Ashley has a new album coming out June 18th, and our interview will be a great prelude to the release of her new album. Other upcoming interviews include star of the Broadway stage, Hollywood film voiceovers, the hit television show Glee, singer-songwriter Sarah Nimitz, Brown University professor of psychology and rapper Malik Boykin, New York City-based big band composer, arranger, and leader Darcy James Argu, and Vancouver, British Columbia-based blues singer-songwriter and harp player extraordinaire Harp Dog Brown. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.